0: Hello! Welcome to the WarPod, the official podcast of the Remote Warfare Program, a London based research program focusing on remote warfare, the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The Remote Warfare Program is part of the Oxford Research Group, a peace and security think tank. I'm Megan Kaza Peterson, the research and policy officer.
1: And I'm Abigail Watson, research manager at the Oxford Research Group.
0: In this episode, we'll be joined by Dan Mahanti and Beatrice Godefroy of CIVIC to discuss partnered operations and protecting civilians. Enjoy the show!
1: Following the costly military interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, placing comparable numbers of Western boots on the ground in new conflicts, except in the case of direct threat to state survival, has remained unlikely. Yet while Western governments remain reluctant to deploy their own troops, they continue to be concerned about terrorist activity in the world's ungoverned or weakly governed places. Faced with these competing concerns, the UK and others have supported local and regional forces to do the bulk of frontline fighting against groups like ISIS, Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab. There is an assumption that this allows the UK and others to engage abroad while minimizing the risk to their own troops and, at the same time, building regional capacity so that foreign states can address these threats more autonomously in the future. However, we have noted how it can have a number of unintended consequences, particularly in three key areas. It can shift the cost of war onto civilians and local partners. It can exacerbate, rather than alleviate, the drivers of conflict in the places the UK is intervening and it can potentially undermine democratic controls designed to scrutinise and oversee decisions to use force abroad. These risks have also been a key focus of Dan and Beatrice's work at Civic, so we are very glad to have them with us to discuss all things partnered operations. So first, can I ask you both to introduce yourselves and your work at Civic on this topic?
2: Yeah, hi, my name is Dan Mahanti. I'm the director of the U.S. program for, for Civilians in Conflict.
3: Hi, I'm Beatrice Godefroy. I'm um, your director for Civic and out of Geneva, engaging with European st- stakeholders um, on this topic, including the French government, the U.K. government, uh, the Netherlands, as well as the European Union, and NATO. Perfect. Um, and can
0: you perhaps, so Beatrice, can you start off by telling us about a few ways in which states like the UK,
3: France, and other European countries support partners abroad. So I would say it's um as as you know there is as many ways to address partnered operations uh, as there are countries and organizations in Europe. So it's it's pretty really different depending on the organization and country. Um, but uh, maybe to what I would like to highlight first is um, the fact that uh, the Europeans uh, are turning and are prioritizing or preferring, let's say, uh, resorting to partnered military operations or security force assistance mm-hmm. um, for the same reasons, I may say, than the U.S. are doing, but also for very specific uh, reasons linked to Europe collective security. Uh, it's been five, six years since... Um, uh, the, the the conflict in ukraine started the annexion of crimea uh the mounting tensions between uh europe and russia so there is a direct threat at the border of europe that's that's actually um taking all of uh, a lot of europe's um uh, attention in terms of security and defense. And so faced with this situation, uh, being able to resort to security force assistance activities and to partner military operations in context, which may be a priority, but not as much as a priority as, um, as the potential great power competition or conflict with, with, uh, with other powers like Russia uh, is, a very, um, is a very attractive one. So maybe that's the, that's the first point, of the, and that's actually the link between the EU, between France, between the UK, in the way they are actually using uh, security force assistance, you know, in, in order to release resources and political uh, trends, so to say, to, to allocate it to other, uh, priority areas, uh, then, um, with regards to the ways, uh, these different partners approach, uh, parliamentary military operations, let me zoom on France actually, because they have a very special history and, and ways to define it, which is pretty different than the one that the U S have first in terms of definition, um, They operate a distinction between long term cooperation and security sector reform, for instance, as well as, um, let's say, uh, regular. training centers like the Element Francais au Senegal, for instance, which which are somehow part of the history that France has to develop military cooperation with, for instance, African countries. Um, and, and the other uh, component of security force assistance is encompassed uh, into what uh, they call external operations, OPEX, which include partenariat militaro-operationnel, so basically military partnerships and uh, at the operational level, and as well as the conduct of direct military operations. And for instance, the activities that they are doing today in the Sahel are part of the external operations or OPEX, and they include a combination of both the conduct of the direct military operations and security, uh, let's say uh, uh, military operational partnerships. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, an interesting discussion, and, and I'm sure Dan is gonna, is gonna actually explain to us how it works for the US. Uh, then if you look today at uh what are the two main contexts where France is actually involved in, in, in partner military operation involved militarily, that's the Middle East and um and the Sahel. And so interestingly, in the Sah- in, in the Middle East, sorry, they where they have the, the Shamal operations, they are present today in this coalition mostly, I mean, through a number of different components. But a big highlight since the beginning has been the contribution to airstrikes and then the issues it raises in terms of protection of students are obviously very specifically to also data and accountability and potential to respond to, uh, to student incidents linked to strikes. While in the Sahel, again, there is this combination of conduct of direct military operations, which are actually counterterrorism operations, and uh, for uh, for the first time since long, they are also leading an international coalition, uh, doing a mix of counterterrorism operations and assistance to national and regional forces. So there you have a component that's also including uh, operations on the ground and not only operations from the air. Um, raising other potential risks and challenges in terms of the protection of civilians. And maybe my last comment uh, on, on France, and then we can discuss this a little bit later in, in the conversation, is that they uh, have a strong approach for their own operations to uh, IHL, to international humanitarian law, uh, its implementation, as well as to uh, develop or to accompany their military presence with um, uh, civil military actions they tend to integrate or to reproduce this model in the way they engage uh, and and influence their partners Um, but that model shows a number of gaps in terms of the protection of civilians because as we know protection of civilians in military operations is much more than uh, ihl implementation and uh, civil military actions
0: thank you very much i think that's a
3: really useful
0: overview of a very broad category of um, engagements Dan, how do you think that kind of compares to the U.S. experience of support relationships?
2: Yeah, it's actually always really fascinating and interesting for me to to be able to listen to my colleague describe, um, you know, how the European governments approach this, because the U.S. context is similar in some ways uh, and distinct in others. Um, Let me start by saying first, uh, you know, thanks to Oxford Research Group for, for, for having Beatrice and I on, because it's a really great opportunity uh, to talk about some of the ways in which we, why this is actually important to us, and, and what we're doing about it, you know, the U.S. is kind of uh, a unique case in that, you know, the concept of partnering and supporting and assisting other countries uh, in the security sector goes back, you know, to World War II. It's been around a very long time, uh, and the the number of programs and activities and the places in which the U.S. undertakes them. Um, has really grown to the point where there's probably a handful of countries where the U.S. doesn't have some kind of partnership or support or assistance uh, activity. And so, um, you know, the range of activities is as broad as the number of countries in which they take place. But I generally categorize them into a couple of different uh, buckets that might be useful uh, for purposes of this discussion. So the first are ways in which, you know, the U.S. provides some form of uh, support to a country uh, to enable them to be able to conduct security operations on their own, whether that's the provision of intelligence or fuel supplies or other things that kind of you know I'd categorize as kind of operational uh, support without you know actually becoming involved in hostilities. The second is you know the the security assistance or the actual support for capacity building um, or the provision of material you know from the United States that enables. A country to to deal with internal threats or external threats uh, for a variety of different policy purpose purposes. Um, the third are those circumstances in which the U.S. is actually you know on the ground or in the air in support of partner forces, um, which would I'd probably categorize in that that bucket of partnered operations or multinational coalition operations where there's a much more direct role. Even if the U.S. isn't pulling triggers or actually involved in the fighting, um, there's a much you know closer proximity to Uh, to an actual conflict. And then finally, um, I include uh, arms sales in the discussion only because the relationship between arms sales and conflict and and the ways in which our U.S. arms sales, especially conventional arms sales, um, involve the U.S. in conflicts around the world has to be considered because at the end of the day, um, you know, not wanting to speak on behalf of of Beatrice, but I think, you know, generally speaking, it's it's okay to, to acknowledge the fact that Civics' angle of approach on this is to examine kind of the ways in which the countries in which we work, um, you know, are able to enhance or or not the protection of civilians on the ground in, in conflict uh, environments. And I think, uh, and I think Beatrice shares this p- opinion, but I defer to her, you know, that in order to have the most comprehensive understanding of what risks uh, are introduced or mitigated by the the you know the countries in which we work, namely European countries and the United States. We really have to have a comprehensive accounting of all the different ways that they uh, partake in these these activities. And I think very much uh, to your points at the outset of the podcast, um, what we've seen over the course of years since 9-11 uh, is not only a proliferation um, of these activities and programs, um, but a significant deepening you know, of the levels of involvement, the uh, expansion of, of budgets, um, and also just the core belief that these these programs and activities are going to yield the kind of outcomes uh, that that the U.S. Is, is most interested in. I kind of joke around in saying that the uh, the range of security assistance cooperation activities in the United States have kind of become a, a Swiss Army knife uh, for policy outcomes. We use it to uh, you know improve our access. We use it to enhance interoperability with other countries. We use it to enhance their capacity to deal with domestic threats. We use it for um, sort of the political dividends that come with uh, with it in order to strengthen you know, diplomacy and partnerships. Uh, and of course, we also look at them as a, as a means of, um, you know, transactional commercial um, revenue. So there are a lot of reasons and motivations for doing it, a lot of stated benefits, um, and a lot of risks that we need to pay attention to. So it's a great topic to be discussing today.
1: I completely agree. And it's always interesting to hear you and Beatrice talk about the Europe and the US respectively, when we hear the exact same concerns and we investigate the exact same concerns in the UK, especially around trying to interrogate whether or not the UK is actually delivering on the claims that it says that partnered operations can can bring. I'm interested from Civic's point of view, what specifically, what is the work that Civic is doing to try and understand what partnered operations
2: Promise and deliver. Yeah, if it's okay, I'll go ahead and take the, the lead on that, and then Beatrice, you can answer the first one or the next one first. Um, let me talk a little bit about what we've done in the U.S. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, um, which again, you know, it all starts with this premise that one, um, you know, are the the angle or the lens through which we see this is, you know, risk to civilians, um, and then two. Um, that we take kind of the broadest possible view of, of what partnership means. So a lot of the activities and support relationships that we talked about earlier um, are a part of our, our work and we try to, to understand each of them. So really the first thing we've done is to try to evaluate, um, you know, given all of that diversity of programs and the ways in which they're applied, you know, what the actual risks are. So we've developed somewhat of a typology, which is based a lot on the work of, of other great organizations to include Oxford Research Group to just best understand when when people talk about the risk involved with you know support or partnership or cooperation like what risks exactly are we talking about what categories do they fall into how do you um, you know assign certain risks to some programs and not others um, so really trying to organize um, in a kind of more coherent typology what what we think the risk factors are that a company, um, not only acts of partnership but um, you know the risks involved with uh, you know particular partners to as a, a you know derivative of that analysis what we've tried to do is to best I understand and identify uh, the most appropriate entry points and the players and the large you know universe of people that are involved with these conversations at the policy level um, but also operationally so we can kind of map out you know who who is it exactly that we should be engaging um, you know in a strategy to help um Refine the approach to these programs in such a way that it delivers better protection outcomes uh, for civilians, and, and really, that's kind of the last step in this. Is, is once we've identified what we think are potentially some uh, some helpful recommendations, is to actually start identifying those options on behalf of policymakers and engaging them with them. And what we've ended up with is, I think, is a, a you know an evolving um, but already Um, decent menu of options that um, that includes both recommendations for restraint or kind of risk-based approaches to um, the provision of assistance or or the partner or the partaking in partnerships uh, but also some affirmative options uh, for governments in my case the U.S. government um, to you know to do to to take advantage of opportunities to reduce risk so Um, We've written a little bit of uh, of public research on this in partnership, in my case, with uh, Centre for Strategic International Studies and Interaction. We've engaged with uh, the Pentagon on the development of their new policy on civilian casualties. Um, We've been been engaging with other parts of the government, I can elaborate more on some of the specifics, but that just gives you a general overview of the the way we've tackled this.
1: Beatrice, did you want to add anything
2: else?
3: Yeah, just a couple of points. that's it's so interesting to to compare uh or to to be able to discuss together europe and, and the u.s thank you very much for the opportunity um there's well one thing is when you speak about um you know the type of i mean when you think about the type of work that you need to do if you want to engage European stakeholders on this question it's because it's europe it's necessarily a Um, an an addition of different governments and addition plus the EU plus other potential organisations and so um, the objective of an organisation like CIVIC is going to of course, we're going to want to have an impact on the policies and practices which lead to better global standards, including in, you know, having POC better integrated in security force assistance. But at the end of the day, we're also doing this because we aim to create a positive impact for the populations on the ground, and especially those which are affected by conflicts today. And so, um, so if we want to have this impact, uh, take a context like 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 the Sahel or like the Middle East, for instance, you need to actually. Uh, play and work and engage with um, uh, different countries, with the European Union, of course with other uh, international stakeholders and regional stakeholders there are many more actually than europeans and americans involved in security force assistance in most of the very sensitive areas in the world from the horn to horn of africa to middle east to sahel and um and having uh, this uh, possibility to actually um engage and influence uh, the interlocutors that can make a difference on the ground and if you take europe uh, since they you know, European governments and the, the EU on critical contexts tend to try and work hand in hand uh, together on these topics. There's going to be a fraction of the response or the leverage that's going to be with one, another fraction that's going to be with the other. So it's, I would say, it's 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 a um, it's a fragmented uh, work. Um, but so as an example of the type of that we've been uh, developing, it's, it's been as much as engaging with the European Union on the Sahel strategy, on the risk management framework to CSDP mission, which are um, basically missions and operations related to, um, to, um, to security and assistance. Um, but it's been also engaging with France, the coalition for the Sahel, as well as other European governments who are members to the coalition, to um to develop this approach and then maybe my last point is uh, the approach is, frag- is fragmented necessarily uh, hopefully it's complement we, we help and create complementarity or consistency between the different you know blocks or bits and pieces i was going to say but but the difficulty is also that you start with interlocutors um, who actually have different understandings awareness comprehension of what uh, what we mean by protection of civilians in military operations so themselves for instance France or the UK we have a different tradition a different understanding of what POC means in military operations and the way they're going to engage with their partners is going to be affected by their own tradition and their own um, and their own history so um So, so that's uh, a little bit, uh, this level of complexity that we, um, that we, that we need to, to integrate. And you've gone through
1: the work that you've been doing to try and track some of the potential risks. And just to say that all the work that you've, you've mentioned while you've been talking has been really influential in our own work, and we'll also include it in the show notes for anyone that hasn't read it. But it would be great if you could outline some of the risks that you've You've noted when doing this work into partnered operations and specifically, what are the risks to civilians in these areas where these operations are being undertaken?
2: Yeah, I can start with that one uh, if that's OK. And then maybe we can get into some of the, the specifics. Um, if I if I start with general generalities here, um, let me start a little bit about the categories I mentioned earlier, because I do think that's helpful to kind of you know sorting out and making sure that we cover all of the risks in the work w- which we do, um, which I think is important, because there isn't, a, like, as you all know, uh, an abundant literature on this. Um, but I think what tends to happen when we talk about uh, these activities and, and quote, risk, um, people tend to mentally conjure something in their own minds about what they think that means. And I think a lot of times, uh, in my own discussions here in the U.S., people tend to, to think of it as, you know, kind of what I'd put in the first category, which is that, you know, through its uh, support activities or programs, the U.S. is directly or could directly contribute to, um, you know, a specific kind of undesired uh, consequence when it comes to risks uh, for civilians, namely, um, you know, actual misconduct on the part of uh, security forces, human rights abuses, et cetera, um, exacerbating, you know, corruption by providing material support to a country where this security sector, um, you know, is misgoverned or is, is subject to, you know, forms of corruption or, uh, in our case, we tend to look a lot at, um, you know, civilian casualties. So the risk that by providing certain forms of material assistance or support, you know, we might be directly contributing to an onward uh, or an ongoing, I should say, trend of, of civilian casualties. Um, but there are other risks that we've encountered um, that might not be quite as um, you know, direct in their relationship to uh, civilian harm. But you still have to consider when you think about civilian harm, um, namely um, that acts of partnership can um, create gaps in the oversight and accountability and the delivery of services from security force actors on behalf of civilians. And that can be, a, you know, both as a function of intentional and unintentional you know, forms of partnership. I don't think in most cases the U.S. military wants to contribute to a gap in uh, accountability or you know, is willing to say that there is a, you know, that the difference in levels of transparency is anything more than just kind of different sovereign states dealing with their publics in different ways. Um, But nonetheless, uh, you know, you can actually create, I think, significant um, issues for civilians who are seeking uh, greater accountability or redress for harm that they suffered. And if it's made more difficult, um, because of an active partnership um, you know that 's something we have to take into account you know another great example of that is in multinational coalition operations where you know states you know believe that collective action is the most um, cost efficient or effective the most you know the best way to distribute risk and, and frankly the best way to combine forces against you know you know uh, challenging adversaries but what can happen is um, you know when you you know a coalition isn 't a you know, something that enjoys like legal character. It is a group of states that are fighting together. And so if there's civilian harm that results from a coalition operation, there may not be one particular state to point to, um, you know, in terms of, or to call in, in terms of getting uh, redress for civilian harm. So those kinds of risks are also things that we need to uh, consider in addition to kind of the more direct, uh, you know, directly proximate uh, kinds of risk relationships that people tend to think of. I also think at civic, um, you know, we're willing to acknowledge the fact that part of the risks involved here are those of missed opportunities. Um, the fact that the countries that Beatrice and I both work in um, do have strong relationships and do wield some influence uh, in the places where they're undertaking these operations, um, and really because of that, have an opportunity to um, to do something to help enhance protection outcomes uh, for civilians, um, you know, in partnership with, with other countries, and also to learn from their partners Uh, the best ways to go about um, doing that so um, even as we're looking at risk mitigation in terms of you know doing less of one bad thing or or moderating uh, an activity or enhancing oversight and accountability there are these other you know opportunities that if if missed i think just creates the risk that we're not um you know looking you know deeply enough for some some great opportunities to to have a positive influence you know for their part uh, in my engagement with the U.S. military, I think they also need to think about two other categories of risk that you know we're willing to sensitize them to, but really are on them uh, to take you know full uh, consideration of. Um, you know, one of course is whether or not you know, inadequate attention to the risk of civilian harm or civilian harm actually occurring can really be detrimental to their operational and strategic. And quite frankly. Uh, their policy, uh, desired policy outcomes. And we've in the United States learned this, um, you know, in our history as a country for decades, that these are not tactical or operational issues that are, you know, um, easy or should be easy to ignore. Um, They are things that can very much affect uh, the way that the United States is perceived its political objectives and, and kind of even it's the the security outcomes that it's aiming to achieve. So I think that and the the reputational risk uh, that it, um, that it risks um, you know when it when it doesn't give adequate attention to these things is something that u s. policymakers really need to take into account in addition to the way that civic really focuses on um, the risk to civilians themselves.
1: And Beatrice, is there anything that you wanted to add to that from from your perspective?
3: Well, I agree with everything that Dan has been has been saying actually, it's super comprehensive. Uh, just a couple of points uh, to add uh, to one of the last points that that he said from. From, um, you know, the few risk matrix or matrices or documents I've seen from, you know, EU or different governments, um, there is indeed sometimes a mix between the risk to civilians and the risk to the organization or government in question. And so um, so the the reflection on what we mean or what is meant by civilian risks and the different categories the different implications the different things that you need to take into consideration is most of the time very insufficient to be able to cover the area of risk but also to then take the appropriate the adequate uh, you know policy um decisions that that, that that follow so very often i've seen a mix of um, you know uh, for instance Things on gender, and then a little bit on uh, fight against impunity, and then a little bit of uh, perception and image risk for the security forces. So there is a lot of different elements, and uh, and nothing that, um, that 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 looks like a systematic approach and understanding of what are the threats and risks to civilian populations. And then uh, maybe the, the 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 second point um, I wanted to make is um, uh, there's also um, again, because of history and different traditions and culture, for some of the European governments, the idea that if there is something that is being done in terms of training, for instance, international humanitarian law training, as well as uh, other activities such as uh, civil military actions or funding of humanitarian assistance or similar type of things, that they get it covered. So basically that... um, that, that since the, the the analysis and the understanding of the risk is relatively limited or insufficient, uh, likewise the understanding and, and the mapping of the actions that need to be taken is insufficient as well. And so there is, um, they, they can be in some situation a sense that basically the risks have been well identified and they are well covered because we are doing training in IHL implementation process, which again is a very good thing to do, but, but not a, um, a sufficient one.
0: I think maybe Beatrice will just pick up on your points a bit more because I think it's really interesting what you're saying about how many different nations have these all these different systems and there's um very rarely any kind of real coordination between the different systems so it'd be good to hear from both of you how states are trying to mitigate against these risks of um harm to civilians
3: Hmm, that's a tricky one it's a big Um, question sorry is Actually, that's a question on which we need uh, at least for, uh, I mean, there is, a, again, I'm speaking a lot about the Sahel, but it is the big context where the EU, European governments, France, UK are all involved today in ramping up their um, collaboration huh, towards um, uh, security and counterterrorism objectives. And um, so we would need more research, actually, on that. Um, my initial instinct or perspective is that, uh, again, there is a common... Background, a common culture, a common tradition. Of of course, um, we have here governments who want to uphold uh, humanitarian principles, the implementation of international humanitarian law. Who, for some of them, have produced, uh, like is the case for France and Germany last year, the call for action on the protection of civilians and, and humanitarian assistance at the UN Security Council. So we have, uh, you know, countries, governments. Um, um, the EU, um, so who have a strong history and tradition to care and support um, um, civilians in conflicts. However, I'm not sure again how far, um, or let's say, how systematic. The integration of POC is at all levels of uh, the coalition that is being built and, and beyond the coalition of the security infrastructure uh, or setup that is actually operative today in the Sahel. Um, again, there is some, sort, some part of support that's expected from MINUSMA. There is um, the new mandate and, and the reinforced actually uh, expectations vis a vis EUTM, the EU training missions, in terms of uh, their role in training and, and now a little bit more of mentoring. There is the Coalition for the Sahel, there is Bakan, there's also uh, um, some I understand that it's not a joint uh, Etat Major, but it's a coordination in terms of the uh, military, op- planning military operations for the uh, Joint force Chief Air Sahel and, and Barkan operations. So there's really a, a very fragmented and complex security architecture, so complexity in the military partnership itself. And in this uh, circumstance, I'm not sure there's been a full mapping, understanding and systematic analysis and systematic integration of POC at all of the different political, strategic, operational, and um and tactical level, and that would be very much needed as we see from the, the the rise in you know violations and exactions coming from the different security forces in the regions today
2: yeah, I think broadly speaking, I really agree um strongly with beatrice's points um you know the, in the u s it's interesting it's a little bit like uh you know that saying they want to have their cake and eat it too i think in part. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to establish, um, you know, more consistency um, you know, and more evenness when it comes to really tackling the risks that are involved with, with the range of these activities, um, because it really isn't the primary political objective in a number of places to do so. And I think there's the belief that you can do, you know, just enough uh, risk mitigation at the same time as you're achieving other objectives, even if, you're achieving them or pursuing them uh, in ways that could be, you know, detrimental to, you know, to civilians on the ground. And so I think a couple of things would probably be worth uh, advising. One, I think in cases where either by virtue of the level of support or uh, because of the degree of risk involved, um, you know, civilian harm or, you know, whether you're defining that as unintentional civilian casualties or um, or human rights abuses or a wide scale you know, um, you know ineffectiveness of the security forces, you know the government the US government really needs to elevate as a policy matter um, its attention to minimizing the risk of its own interventions. Um, in other places it's, it's really not quite that simple and it's a much you know much more mixed bag of, of risks and it's not quite as it may not come across as disruptive or as um, you know potentially even fatal to the success of the overall experiment, and so I think in those cases, the U.S. just like in the case, like your like Beatrice mentioned, just needs to come up with I think a more uh, systematic approach uh, to the way it's it's both assessing risk and then being very honest in the way it assesses its capacity to to do something about it. There was a great article this morning by your former colleague Emily Knowles on um, you know whether or not the inability to measure human rights training is is necessarily a bad thing because we. I think one of the major points we want to reinforce here is that we don't want people overstating the benefits of certain tactical interventions for for risk mitigation. If, in fact, uh, they're not having the de- desired outcome where you know, a political level um, approach, a, you know, a, a strategy that's kind of nested into the policy on on risk mitigation uh, is is really what's needed. So um, so I think those two things would be, you know, potentially advisable in the way that the U.S. approaches this um, but I do think when we when we go back and look at those those buckets of, of activities, there are ways that you can attend or to each um, you know a certain number of things that can be done within uh, the U.S. government to manage risk, uh, if not to mitigate it outright. And, you know, happy to talk about some of those things
1: thank you both again it it really resonates with what we found on on the uk front as well especially this idea that you you both spoke to that when these operations are not given the the strategic importance that they need they end up just becoming a risk free thing to do something which is probably unrelated to the activity that they are doing so you have soldiers Building capacity of partners to build influence with France, but then what does that mean for the actual um, the actual effect on the ground and how much that then improves or hinders the eventual prospects for peace and stability in the places that the UK is intervening? And I think it comes to some of the recommendations that we've laid out as well. This idea that if you are just going in to build influence or you're just going in to stake uk claim or or build on the uk's objectives it's going to be completely ineffective unless it's built into an international effort which looks at the actual need in a country and and tries to address it
2: i just like to have conversation with that point in it for a moment i think that's so true and that's why i think this research and the work that you guys are doing is so critical as we start to see this um you know the introduction more and more often of this whole notion of like countering other great powers and, and beatrice mentioned this earlier in these so-called you know hybrid environments as though these places are not independently important on their own right and as if the people yeah, in those countries you know don't have a stake to you know a, cl- a claim to their own futures uh, so i really think that even as we kind of come out of the you know the so-called era of counterterrorism it's almost as though we're entering a new era where some of these questions are going to be as or or more important so uh, really great point
1: and then just looking forward around how we address address this, just thinking about some of the work that, that we've been doing and also that you've been doing, Dan, thinking about working with the the local level to ask what the true needs are. When we go in going forward in understanding partnered operations and how we mitigate against some of these risks, is is the local element going to be an essential part of making sure that we don't make matters worse?
2: I think so. And you know, I'll speak briefly here because I think Beatrice probably has some um, you know something to say about this as well. Um, I think that question was directed to me, so you can edit out this editorial later. But I do think there is. But you know, what's interesting is um, you know this idea of interacting with or engaging civilians or civil society or the public um, is something that one does have some established record in practice uh, when it comes to some kinds of of activities, interventions, and it is something that has gained. You know, I think traction in the way people are talking about uh, you know, a, a, stra- a successful strategy of a pr- or approach, uh, more generally, what I th- where I think we could um, all stand to benefit would be uh, to tease out some of the specifics. You know, at what stage in the planning, design, implementation, evaluation, um, you know, even funding of programs, to activities. Um, you know, should we be thinking about or should the U.S. government be thinking about the way it's interacting with local publics? What are the risks involved to local publics to include civil society in, uh, in seeking their perspectives? You know, how and where um, does the burden fall between the U.S. government and its partners when it comes to undertaking those interactions? What are some of the other unintended consequences that we want to avoid in terms of, you know, allowing certain organizations or individuals to set the agenda? And in other words, to make sure that we're, you know, recommending a, a, an inclusive approach that's going to benefit not just some, but um, but everybody. So there's a lot of work and, and research to be done in this area that I think is really rich uh, and important. I'll just do a little bit of a self-plug. We're actually starting, actually not starting, we're in the middle uh, of an intense research project right now, you know, looking at some of the, at least the preliminary aspects of this question with hopes that we can even do more research down the road. Um, you know, starting with some of those those kind of tactical questions, how do you um, integrate, um, you know, consultation and, and engagement with civilians, with civil society, um, as a country that is undertaking a, you know, a form of intervention in a in a third country. Um, there's a ton of great literature out this out there on general principles of practice, um, but very little when it comes to security assistance and cooperation that we think um, is really worth exploring. So I'll turn over to Beatrice to see what she what thoughts she has.
3: Thanks, um, and and I'm sorry. I'm going to pedal back a little bit just to the. To the previous question before uh before speaking to uh to your opponent civil society, just wanted to to mention also in terms of the, 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 the risks and the mitigation measure and the adaptations that Europeans and and uh European governments and and, and the EU are, are doing. Um there's been uh, in the context of the Sahel they have been pushed in an area of let's say They have entered um, certain areas with which they were not used to enter before. And the nature of the type of security force assistance activity that they do is is fairly different and going into a much more robust uh, um, approach than what they used to do in the past. For instance, uh, the EU has been uh, with EU training missions doing uh, training since a long time. This includes training on international humanitarian law, but of course many more modules of training today, uh, and and we've seen this again with the new mandate, they are uh, looking at how they can be more efficient to support the overall uh, military response uh, and uh, an international strategy. And uh, and for that, they are uh, entering into areas such as mentoring so um just wanted to acknowledge the fact that as you know european um governments and the EU are entering into this new approach, which are going to be very challenging for their forces themselves, uh, going to be very challenging in terms of uh, reputation, but also potentially beyond that, um, there's going to be even more uh, elements to think in terms of the protection of, uh, of civilians. And uh, and maybe a last uh, point on the, on the cell. I'm speaking too much of this context, I know, but it's so interesting. Um, there is um uh, definitely in terms of the uh, a risk which for civilian for civilian population comes from uh um, exactions or violations or or incidents uh from uh, security forces for national security forces or regional security forces. But obviously the, the, this takes place in an environment where um, um, jihadism, criminality, intercommunal violences and, and, and many more uh, areas are, the, are also a very important threats to civilians. And so I just wanted to acknowledge the challenge and, and the risks uh, to civilians. On the one hand, there is a risk that is linked to the modality from international communities and different stakeholders working in a coalition mode or working in uh, um, in, with a combination basically of partnered military operations Uh, but at the same time this comes in response to a a very challenging environment uh, for which I think there's been no you know, magic recipe that has been uh, that has been um, learned from uh, Afghanistan or Iraq. We know what doesn't work, and we know definitely that not responding and addressing and preventing civilian incidents is definitely. Um, creating a risk to fuel radicalization, but, but we don't know actually what works. So there is this balance and this, um, this um, dilemma that Europeans are facing and, and, and other international actors and national actors are facing today in the Sahel to try and find how they can act differently, including in the way they interact with one another to address uh, their security objectives. And then, in terms of the civil society uh, engagement, this is a, an extremely important question, and I think the work that Dan is doing is going to be extremely informative, not only from the U.S. perspective but also from the perspective of European governments, um, including on two areas which I have seen repeatedly as gaps huh, with my, I mean, on the side of my interlocutors. One, uh, civil-military coordination needs to be reinforced, uh, prioritized. Um, acknowledge as a critical elements to not only um articulate uh, military um, humanitarian assistance with military operations, but also as a way to engage a dialogue between uh, NGOs and civil societies and the military. And these functions very often are, I mean, face a lot of challenges, uh, to say the least. Uh, so they need to be acknowledged. But uh, civil-military coordination is not sufficient. There should be more areas or more ways for civil society and the military uh, in a given context, at the very local level, at the national level, to engage and to create a dialogue and, uh, and initiatives um, that go in this direction, including um, some of the initiatives that CIVIC is doing, but also other organizations to, again, create ways for civil military direct engagement uh, should definitely be welcomed. And most of the time there is sort of a blind spot on this uh, on this question, which triggers um, a lot of, um, uh, I mean, which creates um, uh, potentially negative effects in terms of tensions between civilians and militaries the ground.
0: This is an incredibly interesting discussion, and I wish we had many more hours to go on. We are going to have to start rounding up soon, though. But maybe just to say that we very much agree with your focus on the Sahel hell and how it is a very good case study of how POC, like Dan was saying before, it's not just about humanitarianism. It's not just about ethics. It has real political consequences. It has real strategic consequences. And so having a strong um, approach to this is really very important, especially in remote warfare as well. And we actually, our colleague Liam Walpole did another podcast last month with two experts from the Danish Institute for International Studies on this as well, so we'll, we'll link to that in the programme notes. And with that, I'm afraid we're going to have to start rounding up.
1: So thank you both, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. For those who want to read more in depth about the topics we covered, we put links to any research or publications that we have mentioned in the episode notes. If you want to stay up to date with remote warfare, and the Oxford Research Group's work, please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at ORGinfo and at Remote underscore Warfare, and you can also donate on our page. You can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to joining you again soon. Bye.